everybody and welcome to another uh grimdark tales podcast episode uh i'm eric as always i'm here but i'm joined by a very special new guest uh i'm joined by noel uh hello noel hi there how you doing uh he's uh over in the uk and through the magic of modern technology again he's able to uh join us the way that um jesse did in our last episode which is super cool um since Noel and Jesse are practically on opposite sides of the planet and we can still all have a nice little conversation uh, through our computers. So that's a fun time. And uh, we today is not going to be a Let's Talk Tactics episode as the previous few episodes had been. Um, today we're actually going to be a couple of uh, fluff bunnies and talk about the lore and narrative of the Tau. Um, Noel and I are both uh, Tau players. Um, Tau, you uh, Noel, you play the um, the Farsight Enclaves, correct? Yeah, yeah. Ever since I've started, it was my first army, and it's it's played religiously as Farsight Enclaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and obviously they've they've been there since the start, since like the first edition Tau Codex that that was released, and they've been a big part of like sort of the subversive side of the Tau that deviate from the greater good but the true side depending on how you want <laughs> yes or the faithful the true the one true path of the town yeah. <laughs> um so um and i also i remember i also bought the big when the when the tower first came out they released you know games workshop released this giant kit that was like basically an army that you could just start with and that was my first like huge warhammer army purchase because i decided when i saw them i really wanted to go all in on the tower and um they have since updated a lot but um they also have carried a lot from then that that is maintained to this day i feel like the tau uh lore hasn't really changed too much since they were first inducted into the game and i think that that's kind of unique actually for a, a game in 40 or an army in 40k i feel like um you know like if you look at space marines or or necrons or something they've changed so much since we first like saw them totally. uh, and the tau have sort of just always been this fringe empire they've always sort of had the same belief system the same technology um which i think is really cool and consistent and um and it makes them a little unique in the in the world of 40k but another thing that makes them unique and a lot of th- uh people seem i guess upset by this is that the tau don't seem grimdark enough they they seem a little too shiny a little too uh idealistic and people feel like maybe they just don't they're a little too i don't know anime or something for for people's tastes but yeah i think uh i think you and i both agree that they do fit in and um this is basically just going to be an episode where we talk about why uh why we like them why we think they fit in and um so Noel, when did you first get into the tower when was that um that you started okay. playing 
So, yeah, so um, for me, but it was uh, literally just like, you know, like many, you know, disappeared from the hobby, you know, when, um, you know, beer and, you know, women and everything <laughs> else were discovered. Uh, but yeah, so I've always, I've always read the 40k fluff, like ever since, like I was way back in the day when I was like 13 or so, it was like mm-hmm. early 90s. So, because, um, you know, I, while I was into fantasy, like Lord of the Rings light doesn't really quite cut it for the fluff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to get back into it. Um, was reading up a few different codexes to kind of like see what my first army purchase would be. Um, and for me, the tower really struck a chord. Um, yeah. wasn't specifically the Tau Empire itself. Um, I mean, while it gave a good overview and like you've already touched on there ever since like, you know, when they got their first codex out in like third edition. Mm-hmm hasn't changed an awful lot it's definitely fleshed out some um yeah. which you know we'll go into a bit later but um sure. you know um yeah i mean it, it just you know i read that and then there's a little there, at the time there was a little known um supplement for the seventh mm-hmm. edition code uh codex this is like the initial one before the very late crazy detachment rules and everything <laughs> yeah um then you know it was the farsight enclaves um codex supplement and you know the backstory on Farsight himself, the separation and his annexation from the Tau Empire, basically. Yeah. That was just yeah, that got me hooked. Uh, and um, yeah, so th- that was just like, yeah, this is the army for me. This yeah, me. it just it just struck a chord. It's that you know a lot of the aesthetics behind it, like that deep samurai red, that kind of you know, and you know again lots of parallels and that. It just definitely, um, yeah, it was just for me, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the 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 far side enclaves for people who don't know, they're sort of um, like a deviant um, sort of uh, subgroup of Tau that uh, <laughs> followed. They're they're led by Commander Farsight, who was uh, one of the Tau Empire's greatest heroes. But yeah. after he went on this huge campaign, he started getting sort of disillusioned and disgruntled. And he found out some things that made him sort of question the greater good, which is the belief system that all the Tao adhere to. They're like a monoculture. Well, um, it wasn't necessarily the greater good. It was the ethereals themselves that right. he rebelled yeah. against. Um, was, um, you know, the greater good he still very much abides by. Um, right. But, um, yeah, it was the way the ethereals... Um, bandied around stuff and kind of, you know, hid stuff from the greater empire, you know, yeah. what they considered the greater good. Um, but, you know, also hid a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. But also as he was exposed to a lot of everything, um, a, lot, a lot of the greater universe, and like the, when they, it was a second sphere expansion, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, you know, and then um, as he went out, you know, certain things just didn't add up, like, um, you know, elements of chaos, for example. Uh, yeah. He got um, kind of, you know, essentially, he got, you know, a few, a few different um, times in his career where basically, uh, you know, he met demons and, um, and you know, was was basically what's the word I'm looking for, um, subject to, you know, just these things that just, yeah, just didn't quite add up, and the ethereals kind of, you know, either swept it under the rug or, you know, just guided him away from doing other things or ordered him to do stuff that just basically just really riled against, um, you know, just what he thought would be best. Um, right. 
you know, so I mean, for one of those examples, like very early on, is the Arkanasha War, um, where he was facing off against um, the Orcs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it was a very long campaign. Uh, and throughout the whole time, they were completely, completely under undermanned, as it were. Um, it was, you know, despite many, many um, calls for help and aid from the Ethereals, they basically just went, you know, I'm sorry, the Ethereals yeah. can't get the phone right now. If you'd like to leave a message. Um, and yeah, so, um, and then kind of, you know, when they did get aid, um, it was a lonely ethereal basically just come to him and just like, yep, yeah, off you go. You're coming with us. Just like, what about this war? <laughs> it's like, no, 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 we're giving up the planet. doesn't matter if you fought there for a decade or more. It's just like, we're just cutting out and, you know, it's all part of the greater good. Come join us. Right. So, um, yeah, one of the many things like that, um, that happened, but yeah. So that was a bit of a tangent, sorry, but yeah, Ethereum. No, that's okay. Very good. <laughs> very much. Yes. Very much so the, good, but without the Ethereals. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So the Ethereals are are like the governing body of the of the Tao mm-hmm. uh, culture, but the Ethereals also have the Imperium. At least seems to think the Ethereals have some sort of maybe pheromone or, or mind control that they unleash on the Tao people to make them so loyal. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I actually haven't read. Do you, have you ever seen anything that exposes the the no, secret of the ethereal's function? No, not really. It's a lot of um, conjecture, really. Um, yeah, they've left it distinctly kind of obtuse and kind of like you know obscured, kind of like exactly as to how um, they managed to gain garner so much control. Because I mean, yeah. it's are like first among equals. And yeah, exactly. When you read the history of the Tao Empire, I mean, um, it's very short because you know they're a young race. Um, yeah, I think but, I think they're around six thousand years old since they were like uh, caveman times, basically. Yeah, I think it was the like thirty fifth millennium, if I remember. Yeah, something like um, that. Yeah, there's like you know the explorator vessel, then warp storms, uh, and I think at that time there was, um, I think the Van Dyer and the War of Apostasy, um, mm-hmm. that kind of like kicked off, and basically hundreds of years passed um, before anything can happen, and right. before I know it then you know tower kind of rapidly developed yeah um but yeah no there's nothing there's nothing distinctly there uh, mm-hmm. and even the tau codex when you realize it when you take yourself away from just what it says verbatim um you know you take like human culture for instance you know we're you know since we're developed you know you know in real life it's about two thousand years right if we're going by the christian kind of thing um and so much has been lost just in those two thousand years so when you look mm-hmm. at this kind of story that's six thousand years it's very i think it's very allegorical into you know as in you know the ethereals just wandered in one day and you know um just basically bought all the warring factions and castes um as they are now to kind of you know peace and work together right um, yeah. so it's kind of almost um i think I, th- I think that story should be taken with a pinch of salt um, yeah, it feels very allegorical for sure. Yeah. Um, they um, feel very messianic in their representation. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's kind of like, um, and that in itself leads itself to you know how they are and kind of you know work towards you know just, just literally as a species. Right. But um, I forget what my point was. Oh yeah, the grim dark thing. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, without going on to a rant too much <laughs> mm-hmm. i think um i get why people 
think they're not grim darks. I mean, outwardly, they're very young, they're very naive, they're very idealistic, they're very clean, very shiny, etc. Kind of, you know, on the surface and just how you look at it and visually. Yep. Um, but I mean, let's look at it. I mean, grim dark is like, you know, we're talking about a type of fiction that's dystopian. Yes. Yeah. And we're talking about a race which is um, technically a very small part of a very big galaxy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're very, and the, yeah, the, I mean, when you're taking the greater thing, it's, I mean, fundamentally, it's, you know, they, they kind of don't stand a chance. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, that in itself is this young hope that's ultimately, you know, dashed to failure, you know, unless they manage to, you know, completely avoid any contact with the species and manage to take over the galaxy miraculously, which is quite unlikely to happen without a fight. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that in itself is quite, you know, it's uh, there's an element there which isn't, you know, essentially, you know, you're grim, dark and gothic, but, you know, I mean expanding on a further path it's not like all the races are that anyway i mean you look at the elder you look yep. at the Nets, you look at the orcs you know yep. each have a different feel um both visually and you know i mean orcs are just violence and fun right <laughs> basically <laughs> mad max yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know i mean you could argue that that's not too grimdark it's just mm-hmm. it's violent it's not quite dystopian it's just you know it's orcs almost like comedy factor really right exactly <laughs> Um, but yeah, while while it's not necessarily grimdark, you've looked to the actual history, which a lot of people avoid. Um, there's this very Orwellian kind of theme that goes behind them with this mind control, right. uh, um, even leading down towards like some of the species that they've um, bought into the greater good and the tower. Like, mm-hmm. um, say for example, uh, the Vespid for being one. There's this, yep. you know, uh, obviously no one plays them because they're rubbish, <laughs> but. Um, you know, I mean, there was a, you know, no language to be had between them until the Tau diplomats managed to convince them to wear these helmets. Exactly. And suddenly they can kind of understand and they're kind of all, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll join you and stuff. And, um, you know, so you wonder, is there anything kind of a bit suspicious about that? Exactly. Yeah. And then there's also the Nagi, which is kind of like, um, um, I'll probably bastardize that um, pronunciation. But, uh, oh, that's uh, fine. But um, they've... Uh, you know, there's these kind of mind control worms and essentially they're used as advisors um, for, say, converted inquisitors, for example. There was a mm-hmm. one and there's this worm that basically is a symbiote is actually within the inquisitor that could potentially just be actually controlling their mind for the greater good. Right. Um, so, again, it leads to this kind of, you know, are they are they as squeaky clean as they really seem on the surface? Um, yeah. Um, even down to, you know, you humans that they call it, you know, bring into the colonies and kind of, you know, the auxiliaries and everything, they kind of, you know, take them to these camps for indoctrination and kind of, you know, assimilation back into the greater good, as it were. Yeah. Um, and you wonder kind of like how much these camps kind of, you know, because <laughs> nothing's really expanded upon. It's all, again, right. it's all, like I say, these are just Orwellian themes that kind of, you know, lead you up to kind of this mind control that kind of seems to be generally happening. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I think um they op- they very deliberately leave a lot of room for conjecture and conspiracy in the in the lore of the Tao because the, it seems like what is appealing to them is sort of the facade that the Tao are the squeaky clean um new race. And I think also there's there's value in them being a part of like the the grimdark narrative i think in that like you said and i think this this bears repeating because i I don't think everyone really 
necessarily understands this, but the Tao Empire is like this little tiny thing over in like the far southeast corner of the galactic map. Like yeah. they're they're not everywhere. They're not the, the Imperium is everywhere, and the Imperium is grimdark um, because they are an empire that's in decline. Mm-hmm. And I think like technically the the Imperium's kind of already seen the the moment of their defeat in the Horus Heresy. And it's almost like they're just very slowly crumbling away mm-hmm. um, like from that moment, that that peak greatness that they had. And and even when I say peak greatness, it was kind of just peak power because there was still this intense militaristic authoritarianism to them at their best. And yeah. um I think that there are Imperium scholars that sort of see their their mirror selves in the Tao as the Imperium was at the at its earliest days, where there there is probably some great fall that could come. But right now they're they're on the rise in the same manner. And um and yes, the Tau probably don't stand a chance at a galactic scale because they're just not big enough. But um, at the same time, the rapidity with which they've evolved and um, they sort of demonstrate that that you know that single mindedness, the the power that can come from an entire people devoted to a single cause. Yeah. Um, but you know, the flip side of that coin is. A whole lot of slaves came together and built the pyramids too. That doesn't mean, you mm. know, those slaves are having a good time in Egypt. Um, it's s- sort of an interesting um, situation where people think they're they're shiny and and good and naive, and to a degree, maybe they are somewhat naive just because they they have so little experience exploring the mm. um, galaxy and they don't have um, they can't traverse the warp, so they can't travel at the speeds that other cultures can yeah. um but, that big, about four sphere, sphere. <laughs> yeah 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 um except for yeah that and they they have um maybe you can help me with this Noel. i know that in that sort of failed sphere expansion they found either built or found some sort of gate that allows them to travel at least between two spaces yeah uh, so um yeah so i mean the full kind of history on that one is that um so towards the end of the second sphere expansion yes um when um um the empire started to realize that there's this crazy new empire and kind of they're encroaching on our space and you know you know burnham which is you know yep. pitchforks out um they basically drove them back across the damocles gulf um and you know despite the fact that it was just a very small part of the imperium retaliating drove them all the way back into tau space and even right. down to the fact that i think it was dallas um set world that where basically it kind of you know it started to um basically got to get to the end of the second sphere expansion so the tower were literally driven back to their own space and one of their major set worlds was under attack mm. uh, it was only because they reached an impasse uh, and um, other things were calling kind of you know other greater threats in the galaxy that they just right. went okay i'll wash my hands of this and you know um you know we'll get you later kind of thing yeah. um as such what happened was they left you know the imperium being wasteful as they are um you know burnout ships and everything were just basically left so yeah. as part of that um because they discovered these kind of you know imperial ships when they actually bought went into tower space they obviously used the warp um you know mm-hmm. 
essentially bypass a lot of their defenses by, you know, just jumping up and going surprise. Um, anyway, yeah, loads of wreckage was left over. So they salvaged it and tried to figure out what was happening with, you know, I mean, what was this kind of crazy science they were using? Mm -hmm. Um, they managed to essentially, you know, after the third sphere, um, managed to find out one of the war drives, roughly how it worked, essentially retrofit it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is um, where they got the um, Star Titan Nexus, because beforehand they would just kind of almost go faster than light to the point where they were almost skimming the warp, Yeah, um, but never quite really going full in. So, you know, their expansion was hampered by that. Yeah, yeah. Because even these kind of, you know, small skipping stone jumps, um, they'd have to, you know, lock their entire, you know, contingents and, you know, cadres kind of in cryo essentially for those periods. Yeah, because it was still such a long time. Yeah, the, um, just because travel. Yeah, just because of the vast distances. So um, anyway, so they retrofitted it and called it, I think it's the Star Type Nexus. Mm-hmm. And they obviously, on Ornvar or the simulacrum of Ornvar, because by that time he'd been killed off. Again, right. a piece of propaganda <laughs> that was uh, done by the Tau in order to keep the greater good at bay and kind of, you know, they, they basically subverted and instead of, you know, admitting that, you know, the Ethereal Supreme had died, yeah. uh, um, you know, they basically, you know, he's now, he's essentially a hologram. Yeah. Uh, keeping the dream alive that kind of, you know, oh no, you know, he hasn't died and, you know, we can kind of essentially control the make greater population by it. Yeah. Anyway, back to Star Zone Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so anyway, Four three expansion came. Um, the hologram of Ornvar saying, "Kind of like, okay, and let's go." And basically, it was a mess um, because there'd been very limited testing, and there were so many ships that had um, this new kind of like warp capabilities there um, that it basically ripped open um, a warp tear, um, and they got swallowed whole, and the entire. The entire sphere, full sphere expansion. So we're talking hundreds of ships, yeah. uh, and you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of you know, tau and exhibit. Yeah, these were like generation ships. They had like yeah. enormous amounts of tau on them. Yeah, exactly. So we're talking about literally kind of you know an empire in the making, completely yeah. lost in one foul swoop um, to the warp. And you know, it wasn't until many many years later that mm-hmm. um, I, basically contact was remade because a probe. Um, basically jumped back out through the warp they came, the warp rift that they came from. Um, and the two essentially, you know, the major tower empire and the force of expansion was essentially joined, joined again by the start right. of Nexus, which is, I think, to the galactic north. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite, it's quite obscure as to kind of exactly where the force sphere is, whether it's yeah. in Imperium Nilus or, um, you know, just essentially a little bit further on, you know, their side already of the, um, of the, of the galaxy yeah it's obviously with the great rift kind of there it's um yeah but we'll i'm sure that'll become obvious where it is later on in time when there's some kind of uh you know well there's when there's new law written uh, yeah yeah yeah. yeah so um yeah so basically they they managed to get remet um after many years and um yeah it's um they didn't have the best times <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and um, the the tau that sort of came out the tau that were refound after that um sphere expansion failure they definitely had an air of of difference about them they seemed um sort of darker of of mood and and 
they seemed suspicious of others and yeah especially um, of um anyone that wasn't specifically tau uh right as in race um and the reason behind it is obviously they were caught in the warp and mm-hmm. essentially stranded there for ages um they were essentially picked upon by demons and um what they figured throughout their kind of you know odyssey through the warp um was that um the other races that were more psychically attuned mm-hmm. um were essentially kind of like magnets for these demons obviously um, yep. and kind of they would get stalked and you know preyed upon um and that was kind of you know they started to kind of you know maybe get an inkling of what the warp was about um but also within there and it's kind of um again it's kind of this homer's odyssey kind of vibe to it they were mm. rescued by this um almost like a jest out form of the greater good mm. um, which again had kind of cues because it had like many arms um you know and some of them were benevolent some of them were kind of very warlike mm-hmm. but there was this kind of jest out kind of like almost towel like god essentially right. uh, um essentially opened up another rift and kind of allowed the force sphere to get back into real space mm. and what they realized was that you know as the tau don't really have a presence in the warp that this was the um, culmination of um or spiritual belief that the humans and other auxiliaries had in the greater good because uh, obviously in the warp what you believe is eventually made so uh, right many people believe the same thing it you know it coalesces and you know takes form yeah so um yeah they you know the tau obviously being very secular and not believing in religion or gods or anything um you know obviously rightly feared this kind of being and realized that hang on a minute you know this is a perversion of the greater good and the faith we all believe in you know this isn't a spiritual thing it's, right. again it's almost like a, a replication of what happened in the you know the great crusade you know right. the going i'm not a god kind of thing um and obviously humans being kind of you know very spiritually kind of minded they was just like yeah whatever (laughs) yeah we're we're so take it to the max (laughs) so yeah we're we're so accustomed to to deifying things and the emperor was so godlike that it was like there was no way humans weren't going to start that that level of you know emotional um sort of reverence and i and obviously that is the stuff of the warp so yeah that's like where we get warp tears and warp storms and demons manifesting and possession and all this stuff happens this is an extremely like glossing over uh the lore 40k but yeah the footnotes and the major yeah the the, like basically cliff notes of of 40k um these these psychic manifestations are basically just the the will and the soul power of of human beings made manifest and it forces these things into being that should not be and they they can fall into real space when enough people are sort of thinking the same concept or idea it can it can bridge that gap between real space and um the empyrean or the warp or whatever you want to call it but um in the case of the Tau, they have almost no psychic resonance as a species. They have no psychers, obviously, on the table. Um, yeah. But in the in the lore as well, the Tau have almost no psychic footprint, which means that the warp has very little hold in general on them. Obviously, they can still be like killed by demons that are in real space, and and things can go wrong if they're in the warp for some reason. But 
Mm. Um, they don't sort of summon demons the way that a group of cultists would or, or whatnot. Or if they could, maybe it would take a whole lot more of them or something. I'm not entirely sure what they could do. Yeah. To make that happen, I, 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 I think they've kind of really developed kind of, you know, um, in the timeline. I mean, we're talking about a race that is, you know, like I say, 6,000 years old, you know, when you yes. take the Imperium of Man, you know. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about psychers and kind of even down to in you know mankind, when you're kind of like the age of darkness, you're still yeah. talking about you know maybe twenty odd millennia. Yeah, um, humanity so, is ancient uh, by the point yes. that the Tau even started. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, this this could happen sometime in the very distant future if they survive. But you know, at the meantime, it's they're they're not even close to reaching that level of uh, evolution. Yeah, Although but, they are very swift at evolution, so, you know. Yes. Yeah. The fact that kind of you know within six thousand years, I mean, obviously interbreed, not no interbreeding, and kind of you know definitely kind of this pedigree between the different castes and no breeding between them should happen. Yeah. There, you know, there's a lot of variety within you know the the tail race. Uh, yes. Yeah. You know. Um, but you know, yeah, they're just not there yet. Um, but you know, I mean, you know. I, th I think kind of by the time it gets Warhammer, like, you know, 140K, then, you know, it could be a thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. They, they, they have the, the potential to, to grow in that area. And it's really interesting, I think, too, that the Tau have sort of a, almost a eugenics um, system that they have on their planet where they do, they breed into a caste system. And through mm. very selective breeding, they've actually created like very um disparate even anat anatomical differences between like mm. the different caste systems so the fire warriors are a bit bigger more muscular and yeah. they have more aggressive tendencies they're a little more bellicose which by tau standards isn't very bellicose compared to you know the the physical aggressiveness of an orc or whatnot but yeah it still is it to them it's like they're they're hunter um, equivalent and then you have the air cast with their very fragile bones supposedly they used to have wings in their yeah, ancient days you fly so even back then kind of the yeah. dawn of their existence there was a lot of uh, variation between their rates yeah if you got essentially like a flying subculture of kind of yeah um but yeah so um it's very interesting hmm. and it um, another thing, too, is that the Tau are very unique, I think, in 40K in that they openly incorporate, uh, you, you touched on this already, but they openly incorporate other species as like auxiliaries in their military, mm. as well as incorporate them into their culture. Yeah. Um, so um, it often seems like, and an interesting aspect of that, too, is that um, seemingly like on the front lines of Tau space, when the Tau and the Imperium collide, and um, the Imperium ends up sort of allowing themselves to assimilate into Tau culture. Mm. Um, they're not just left there. Um, they're, they're often, it seems, brought deeper into Tau space and sort of indoctrinated, quote unquote, yeah. um, in that's, Tau that's culture. Yeah, I mean, they're brought within to like stable spheres um, right. and have shown a better way. Yeah. And obviously in a grimdark universe where, you know, you're fed kind of, you know, reprocessed rations and, you know, even water is a scarcity for mm -hmm. you know, a lot of citizens. And all of a sudden it's just like you're given a home, fresh food every day. You know, it's just like, you know, it's, it's essentially it's like, you know, a utopian. Um, yeah. You know, exactly. dream come true for a lot of imperial citizens. Yeah. Then, um, but but you know that's kind of on the surface again. But you know they're brought within the fold, so they're completely cut off from the rest of you know 
their society and indoctrinated. It's again, it's kind of this Orwellian 1984 vibe where, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, you send to these camps and kind of, you know, you're essentially, you know, processed back into, um, uh, you know, a more, you know, forgiving society, but yeah. um, one that essentially, you know, leads you down to, um, you know, uh, a, a kind of a, a program that, you know, Right. It turns it turns their citizenry into essentially cogs in the machine that is the greater good. It, 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 in the same way that the Imperium is admittedly more open about that, where they're like, "Oh, you're you're pretty worthless." It's like it's almost like the Imperium has the they've reinvented the idea of original sin that you were born, um, you know, and you need to atone for the fact that you even exist by working for the sake of the imperium and that's how this is the only way our species will endure this incredible um burden that is existing throughout the entire uh galaxy like this and beset on all sides by so many different things and um you know things like mutation are uh you know like a curse and there's all this superstition around the mm. idea that you're sort of born you're already being born. That was your first mistake. And then yeah. <laughs> everything after that is like, you're just trying to make up for that. So the Tau, obviously it's more like they're, they're doing the carrot instead of the Imperium stick where they're, yeah. they are trying to propagandize and prove to people how good their system is, but it's all, it's all a show and it's not that people don't live these lives of luxury in certain aspects of Tao culture, but I it's mean, more. It it's, yeah, they do. But I mean, yeah, but it, it comes with, it comes at a price, which is, yeah. uh, you know, you've obviously got to forsake everything you knew for good. Right. Uh, there's, there's this forced complacency and there's sort of a forced, like um, you have to lose your, your sense of identity somewhat. Um and yep. your sense of self and and to humanity that's that's anathema because we're we're so programmed for independent thought and and being free individuals and so the idea that the tower sort of subverting um you know i think a lot of citizens that are integrated maybe don't notice that they've been indoctrinated because it's so different and it's so lush but it's like yeah it's not it's not necessarily better because you have to you have to sell your soul somewhat to to be a part of that but yeah yeah so it's like and, and a lot, obviously a lot of people do it willingly um, yes but there is still this um this form of kind of you know just you know subversion um, yeah. kind of underlies a lot of um what the tau empire is yeah. um, there's always the question of like what would happen if you said no because yeah. that's when the Tao Empire suddenly isn't so shiny. Like yeah. anyone who resists their advancement is is yeah. probably not going to have a good time. So it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, they've, they've definitely got like an uh, like an old style English kind of you know empire colonization thing. It's just like yeah, it expands. You know, we claim the space. You know, in the name of the Tao, and we'll back it up with this pulse rifle. <laughs> exactly, and and you don't might make use it. <laughs> And then like, you could say, I don't know, the crew in that case would be India or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that wouldn't be too much of a bad analogy. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. I suppose, kind of, um, even then, kind of, you know, uh, 
you can kind of, I suppose the crew were probably one of the easiest auxiliaries they probably managed to get, yes. uh, but only because they, you know, played it quite well. I mean, they obviously did intervene in the crew wars against the Orcs, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, by saving essentially their um, spiritual leader, um, it pretty much secured them um, into the empire, you know, right. uh, pretty much, you know, lock, stock and barrel. Um, I mean, I know that kind of, you know, they are mercenaries by heart, so they will fight for other species, etc. But sure. by and yeah. large, they're property of the Tau Empire. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it'll be kind of like, you know, um, but even then there's this kind of, you know, it's just this, they, they keep them at a distance and there's, um, there's definitely a pecking order within the caste system. And, you know, while you're part of an empire, the Tau species themselves are definitely the first among equals and yeah. aerials amongst even the Tau Empire are first among equals among them. Uh, yeah. So there's definitely this whole kind of pyramid scheme going on. <laughs> yeah. And of course the, the, the lie that they tell their own people with Aunva being, you know, he's deceased, but they, mm-hmm. they tout him as if he's still the leader of their people. And um, that definitely smacks of, you know, real world sort of, extreme communist nations or or whatever where or yeah. you know north korea or something where yeah. there it, it just smacks of like incredible levels of propaganda and the, um there's like a forced military reinforcement of these concepts too so it's like if if one doesn't get you the other will people are sort of forced to adhere to the greater good and mm-hmm. oftentimes we don't see at the ground level you know yeah we, we don't really see Earthcast um, members deciding for themselves what you know they believe in, or we we haven't really seen much of that subversiveness on the ground, except in uh, in Farsight, really. And yeah, and pretty his, his enclaves were the, sort of the first open uh, resistance to the Ethereals propaganda mm-hmm. machine, and. Yeah. Um, and it's one thing that's quite interesting, especially in um, a couple of the later books and um, even the latest codex. There seems to be quite a few um, mentions now where uh, people are kind of like not necessarily waking up, but uh, mm-hmm. there are, you know, definitely elements, uh, you know, certain areas of the Tau Empire where they're starting to realize that not everything's squeaky clean and they're getting becoming a bit despondent with um the ethereal rule as it were yeah. and they're essentially breaking away and um you know to, to the far side enclaves mm-hmm. uh, and i mean one thing that happened before the fourth sphere expansion was there was a group of survivors from the agrelin campaign and growing despondent with um the way the ethereals ran things um they basically tried to break away and there was a i think it's um sure strike Mm-hmm. Um, who was kind of second command to Shadow Sun, basically had a face-off um, and, you know, shots were fired between him and, uh, you know, Farsai. Yeah. Um, with regards to a load of people who were essentially seeking asylum in the enclaves. Right. Um, there's another uh, there's another little lovely piece as well. And again, I can't remember the commander's name, but it's in the latest Tau Codex where uh, the hologram of Ornvar was um, basically telling um, one of the major commanders um, in the Southern Tau Empire, um, basically to, um, you know, essentially stop fighting where you're fighting and do something else. But as that was happening, um, some kind of bombardment hit the tent 
uh, basically, while he, while the commander survived, um, the honor guard were destroyed. But Onvar miraculously um, was unscathed, being a hologram, <laughs> and um, found out exactly what had happened. Um, obviously, it was just like, hang on a minute, <laughs> and um, and then yeah, he he essentially. Um, broke away from the Tau Empire as well and joined the Enclaves. So we're kind of seeing a little bit more of that. And I think it would be interesting to see as the as the fluff goes further on down the line, just how much more of a breakaway as people start to realize that, you know, the the rule of the ethereals is kind of, you know, it's it's kind of like a forced lie with yeah. being trying to subvert people to their cause, kind of, you know, not through really honest means. Mm-hmm. You know, they're saying one thing but teaching another, essentially. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, that's that's definitely. It seems like things are are moving towards a point of coming to a head in that regard. And you know, it's interesting to think about is is Farsight sort of the analog for Horus to the Tau Empire, or um, obviously Horus was corrupted by chaos and things like that. But Farsight almost is just he's not corrupted by anything it's more like he's he's truly seeing things for the first time and he realizes he's been mm-hmm. lied to and in that regard horus was lied to the emperor hid a lot from the primarchs and um i mean it's quite interesting i mean you say he's not corrupted i mean technically i mean the way he behaves and the way i mean you know you read a lot of stories about like a far side crisis of faith and there's loads of decent novels with him like chasso uh, and a few mm-hmm. other um he's definitely the the like a paragon of the tau ideal like you know the greater good is you know does work and in the enclaves without the ethereal rule and they get along and you know um you know people are treated as equals um so it is almost kind of like the actual ideal of what the tau empire could be without them um, right can be a thing yeah but, yeah so but i mean that's how he is in the in the fluff and the lore and kind of a lot of the stories he's he's still very much the idealist of the the greater good however you do have to wonder about kind of you know what might be happening with him because obviously he's got he's got the dawn blade yeah he's he's also lived way longer than any tower should right i mean yeah completely i mean he's he's lived hundreds and hundreds of years now uh yeah and you know longer than any tower has any business of living <laughs> right um and this is literally down to the dawnblade um you know he when he almost well, well when he got embroiled in this kind of war in arthur's moloch mm-hmm. uh and kind of essentially had to shut down a, a warp gate you know you've discovered a lot about um the warp demons um ethereal lies etc mm-hmm. uh, um, and one of the interesting things about it was um there were three ethereals on that expedition um right. counsel and guidance guidance and the demons actually sought them out and killed them first mm. um but that's kind of a little mild aggression, which kind of, you know, just like, hmm, make of that what you will, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It, or is it kind of a pheromone or is it kind of, you know, a little bit of that? I mean, there is definitely some kind of force where they have a gravity that compels the rest of the Tau Empire to be, you know, for the to, to obey them. Yeah. But, um, I mean, aside from that, anyway. So... But yeah, he discovered the Dawnblade on Arthur Smolok along with the talismans of Arthur Smolok, which kind of, you know, you realize kind of, you know, these hexagrammatic things that can essentially, they scare demons away because they're kind of almost like a Blackstone thing. Right. Uh, and um, 
but yeah, kind of, yeah, this, this, this blade, it literally takes the souls from people who it kills and feeds the, feeds the bearer. So he's, he's, he's got this kind of soul vampiric blade, essentially, yeah. uh, staining him. You've got to wonder how much that's corrupting him. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you have to wonder how much that's sort of poisoning his ideology and, redirecting his motivations because we don't know necessarily what's going on inside his mind. We don't know um, what his actions necessarily mean. And you have to assume that blade is having some sort of consequence besides his longevity. Yeah. Um, and he's unaware of it, but I mean, even in the, um, the lore and kind of um, the, the story about it, the actual origin of the blade is completely unknown. Right. Uh, so we don't know whether it's a uh, it's an older extinct race or whether it's you know uh, you know some some imperial or demon uh, type uh, sword or even if it's kind of you know something older than that like a necron blade yeah uh, or you know something that the old ones essentially had because uh, right. then you know it, it was this just very very old blade but yeah as such no idea so there's a lot left open for it yeah, yeah um, absolutely. But yeah, so um, it's a kind of quite interesting as well because the way the um, story, and this is another tangent that's going roundabout, but there is, um, with the way the fluff is developing in the fourth year expansion, we find out that the third of Pure Tide's uh, students is actually kind of alive and essentially out there mm-hmm. in the greater universe. He's no longer cryogenically frozen, um, which is the army of one, which is uh, Chateau Caïs. Um, yeah. And you kind of wonder where he stands between Shadow Sun and Farsight and, uh, you know, how he thinks about the Empire. Right. Um, and, you know, which side essentially he'll choose if, if forced to make a decision. Because he's, within his own right, he's definitely, um, he doesn't play ball, let's say, <laughs> with, uh, with the greater good ideals to, to a large degree, because he does go by the, the law of the monarch which is kind of essentially the army of one, you know, he doesn't need, he's kind of the, the polar opposite to the way Tao behave, which is right. you know, very, you know, there's a lot of synergy. There's a lot of working towards, you know, and helping each other out to achieve, you know, greater things yeah. while he's very much the outcast and by himself and kind of doesn't want or need the help of anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. So I wonder how he will sit if, uh, you know, shadow sun, for example, comes up to him and says, uh, Oi, get back in line. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I feel like we're right on the cusp of like some really interesting things happening. And I don't know if you felt this way, Noel, but when I read the 8th edition Tau Codex, um, I mean, not only was I very pleasantly surprised with like the way they operate in, in 8th edition, um, but also I feel like the Tau Codex is like really well uh you know flushed out compared to previous editions with mm. all the septs and the personality inherent in the septs and i feel like it and you know with them talking about the failed sphere expansion and the tau's sort of close brushes with the warp and the the way it's affecting them culturally mm. um there's sort of this like ideological uh cancer that's spreading and whether or not that's that's good or bad i do think that it threatens sort of the the unified aspect of their culture and um so there's i think there's i i feel i feel personally like 
were sort of on the cusp of like some big plot line happening with them. And I know you kind of workshop, it's almost like you got this kind of very, you know, very strong ideology with them. And, you know, it's been built up and built up and they've had to make so many, you know, twists and adjustments to essentially, you know, um, deal with um, kind of, you know, get everyone to toe the line with their propaganda and, you know, where the ethereal council kind of wants the, wants the actual, you know, empire to go. Yeah. Um, but you kind of get this impression that now more than ever, it's literally a house of cards, uh, kind of, you know, one little gust of wind and everything's just going to go. Yeah. Uh, um, and then, yeah, you wonder kind of like how they maybe pick up the pieces from that. So, right. you know, whether you know far side or shadow sun or indeed kind of you know uh Kais essentially kind of essentially it might turn out that there's you know essentially three separate tau factions kind of you know come the end of it if it right. kick off like that with um three slightly different ideologies based on uh, you know the same principles yeah yeah it's it's like i feel like and i know games workshop always loves to tease and and keep us right on the edge of like the big change happening but mm. they are they are capable of crossing that line i mean seventh edition ended with this massive cataclysm and eighth edition opened with the great rift which is sort of like the biggest thing that's happened yeah. in in warhammer lore as far as I can even remember, really. Yeah. Um, There's an excellent job to really kind of A, upset the apple cart, but kind of, you know, knock it forward that little bit so it, you can start to tell some new stories with it. Yeah. Um, and they've done it perfectly. I, I like the fact that they're starting to rein back without kind of throwing cataclysm upon cataclysm upon cataclysm. So kind of, exactly. you know, it allows people to take a breath and kind of, you know, start forging their own narratives and, you know, um, kind of consolidate a little bit from kind of, you know, um the crazy stuff that's been going on yeah exactly but yeah and i and i feel like the the tau at the same time that the great rift happened i feel like the tau are sort of on the cusp of their own thing on that on that level you know for them in their own little pocket of the galaxy i feel like they mm. the um their brush with the with the warp and and they're developing technology that is maybe beyond their ken and everything it's it's definitely i think leading up to something where the tau are like you said towing the line where the ethereals are desperately struggling to maintain um the order and the cultural unity and the far side enclaves are becoming more appealing and, and bringing more support and there are other tau military leaders who have chosen to deviate or are questioning um yeah. the authority that they once took as as just a given yeah. um some see it almost like a personal crusade in the fall sphere where they're i mean they've been kind of sanctioned a little bit but essentially the fall sphere were known and kind of you know they're kind of separating them from auxiliaries because they're known for actually killing them off when possible right yeah so, yeah, yeah. So to follow the ideal that you know obviously they've seen this um perversion of the greater good in the warp and they're yep. just like all these auxiliaries they have to die yeah <laughs> <David>. and and <laughs> <laughs> that kind of extremism obviously is not in adherence with like the one greater good. So yeah. are we going to start seeing deviations within the greater good? And I think that they did a great job. Games Workshop did a great job of writing all these different sept, um, 
you know, backgrounds and, and they still all can adhere, uh, obviously, other than the Farsight Enclave. Um, they, mm. they wrote them in a way where they still adhere to the greater good, but they all do have unique personality and experience that allows them to function differently on, on the table. Um, and I mean, um, septrates or septenets, sorry, even. Yeah, uh, septenets. Yeah, it's, it's nice because it does give a lot of unique flavor to a lot of different um, of the septs instead of kind of just being the same army just by another name or color scheme. Exactly. Um, and I think with the Tau um, Codex, they've done a great job on providing those certain buffs yeah. uh, um, that kind of reflect how they are in the law. Um, yeah. You know, so, I, yeah, I, I like the fact that more now than ever they've got a lot more flavor yeah exactly and i i feel like it 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 does such a a great i mean i i think the tau codex is one of the best in eighth edition personally and um i feel like it really uh positively reflects the way that tau function Uh, i've mentioned this in i think previous um podcast episodes but something that i really like about the way tau function in eighth edition and i feel like this wasn't as much in previous editions, but it's really, they've come into their own. I feel like is, uh, they, they really do have to work together, um, Mm -hmm. to function properly. You know, the way that you have to, uh, use marker lights to light a target, everything has to like Mm -hmm. work in this, in this great synergy to function. And they, everything, they're really good at sort of combining the effectiveness of multiple units to work together mm. and for units to, you know, you, they pinpoint something and they delete it and then they, they pinpoint something else and they delete it, which is sort of a very different style than say space Marines, which are designed to sort of just, they're a take all comers. They're designed to take on any threat and to improvise as much as they need to. The Tau think out their plans ahead of time. They're mm-hmm. not just a war of attrition like the Imperial Guard, where they just grind everything down with a with a gun line and they throw troops at something until it's dead. They yeah. they they really work together and they you know you don't want to lose units. You don't want to throw away your infantry because they're useful and. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very much know thy enemy kind of army Um, exactly yeah yeah. um in the way that they kind of behave in the fluff but as um but yeah as you touched on it's just um they play so uniquely compared to any other faction uh and you know just because it relies so heavily on that synergy and not just the marker lights in themselves it's um certain units perform in different ways and but by themselves if you were just going to i mean say like space marines they got scouts or you know you've got devastators you know they perform a function but they can kind of almost do it on their own well not saying that you can't do that with the tau uh with a tau army but they really sing um when they're combined and they're given a synergy with another type of unit exactly. to kind of perform that action. That's, uh, yeah, and that's exactly really it. Together on the board um, when you play them that way. And you can feel that, you know, like a, a crisis team, for example. A crisis suit team is very expensive in points-wise on its own. Mm, um, for the point drop. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're, I think they're fantastic now with the points drop. But um, when you combine a crisis team with fire warrior support, with drones backing them up for protection and for marker light support and everything, when when you combine the, the the place that they drop in with you know where the rest of your army is, and you you 
it can be very geometric in that way and in regards to like the way that you plot it out and a lot of tau weapons that are really strong can be um short range too like a lot of people's sort of fusion spam or whatever yeah. and a lot of armies might just drop a unit in alone uh, via deep strike or something and and do that fusion spam or something but the tau really benefit from protecting those units and keeping them together and even if they're not logistically right next to each other you're supporting them with uh other units that have line of sight with um you know disorienting your opponent's target priority yeah all this stuff that they 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 really do just work so well too and when you combine that with like the amazing array of stratagems they have which i think are basically useful every turn like several of them they, um yeah, have a lot where there's i mean there's some that i you know always go to exactly um but there's just a wealth where you're not left with some that you're just like i'm never going to use that right um there's there's always a few um where you know it's just in the situation uh yep. but not even just in the situation where if you play your army to a certain style or then it really benefits and you've got a wealth there yeah uh, like whether it's a command and control node where you know you maybe you know stop with you know your commander shooting but everything around it essentially gets gets the buffs right um you know so there's so much good stuff there yeah exactly and 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 with things like marker light support you know one of the marker light tiers is that you're you can move and fire without the penalty so mm -hmm. like you really can make your whole army mobile. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to rely on that as a one trick as well. Exactly. I mean, with with a lot of your shoes, you can put the target lock on there and you don't have to rely on that necessarily getting those marker lights to kind of still gain that benefit. Right. Uh, there's a lot of tools in their toolbox. They to really do. Yeah. They have so many options. And and I think that's what makes that, that book so fun and what makes tau army is so diverse i think even yeah. though you know the tau function essentially is a shooting army and don't really have like combat options other than auxiliaries um mm -hmm. it's in that way you might think that they're like a single build army but they're really i think you see some of the most diversity in tau lists of of any army especially in eighth edition where we don't have riptide wings and stupid stuff like that anymore yeah thank god for that <laughs> i know oh my god it's so dumb yeah but um, i mean um i mean so i mean for you i mean just to, just to kind of throw a couple of questions out i mean um, sure. what would you say kind of like your favorite tower units um i mean what was kind of like your favorites to field okay so one unit that i think was always sort of underappreciated since eighth edition opened but has always been one of my favorites is the um broadsides with railguns mm -hmm. um and the reason that i love those so much is when you combine that range, uh, that threat range of uh, 60 inches, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I think on a broadside of 60, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you combine that with that amount of sort of anti-armor capability, and then you put that on a chassis that can be protected by drones and has six wounds and a two-up save, and you can give it a four-up invuln. Yeah. Um, I think that functionally, oh, and the fact that if you give it a target lock, it can still move and fire, or if you give it marker light support, if you if you pinpoint the thing that you want to shoot at anyway, then your broadsides can move and fire without penalty. They're yeah. really not stuck as a immobile, you know, gun platform. They really can move around. I mean, mm -hmm. I think broadsides provide so much 
function in that regard. Or, I mean, I know you could give them high-yield missile pods and advanced targeting system, and then they become just ferocious at that's kind of the way I, I mean i've only got the one but yeah, yeah. that's I, I i always i've all i've always taken him as kind of like oblatai um yeah. so i've kissed him out as such so all the missiles and yeah he always performs really it's, it's nice. amazing it's amazing when you give them ats and they have the backed up you know marker light support they're getting boosted ballistic skill and whatnot um yeah. And I always run um, Sassier Sept as well, or however you pronounce it. So, yeah. Sassier, yeah. So I get those free, uh, one free reroll to hit every turn anyway. So, like, let's say I roll a two on my broadside with its railgun, I get to reroll, even if I'm already rerolling ones with marker lights, I get to reroll the two. And then I'm like basically rerolling all of my hits most of the time <laughs> if I do miss. And it's, it's, fantastic i mean oh and i run my broadsides in individual units so each unit gets that free mm -hmm. reroll hit every turn and yeah. um i also run a tau um brigade like mm -hmm. i've found that tau can pretty easily fit brigades into 2000 points and um having that many command points to play with is amazing i think in in uh eighth edition and against armies like Space Marines that really struggle, you're just dishing out command points every turn. And even with, you know, starting with like 15 command points, I feel that I'm still out of them by turn two because the Tau have so many useful stratagems. Yeah, um, you're kind of destroying them all. You're just spending them just like, that's like, da, da, da. yeah, it's like <laughs> handy, like just throwing them out. And, spending and, them days. <laughs> and, it's, and it's so it's so useful to be able to augment your army that heavily in the first couple of turns. It can really give you that like cutting edge that first turn. And when you, when you combine that with like using Kion or something on your commander and you're getting free roll rerolls in this big bubble, I usually just put my crisis suits on the table turn one. Um, and I just, I just, I mean, it depends on the enemy I'm facing too, but um yeah, I I have to say broadsides are sort of a, a dark horse hero, uh, especially the the rail sides because the I think the missile pod ones are like more obviously good, but um, just so, by the way to fire, really. Yeah, exactly. If you have three of them, that's like a tremendous amount of high power firepower with like basically better auto cannons if you give them ATS. Yeah, and, it's disgusting um, the amount of shots they can pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would have to say the rail side is sort of my secret, not to mention aesthetically, the rail side is like my favorite model, basically in the entire Games Workshop range. But rail weaponry is just so, I mean, it's, it's distinctly Tau. Uh, right. Yeah, just, so uh, cool. I mean, just, it's just this yeah, hyper-velocity bullet that just literally will just tear a hole in a tank. <laughs> yep. um, it's, it's and so cool. And out, and, and out the other side. Yeah. <laughs> I love the I, yeah I love the the way that the rule functions for the the mortal wound on sixes because it really does imply that it sort of is punching a hole through both sides or mm -hmm. if you're shooting at infantry it's like pulping one person and then hitting another or something like that it's yeah it's really really cool and I think it makes perfect sense for the way mm -hmm. that 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 gun would function not to mention you know since they fixed the twin linked rule in eighth edition it means you get two shots with a rail gun on a broadside instead of one re-rolling so i i just love that i love everything about that and i also put plasma on them just to keep them cheap but also because as the enemy gets closer they become more threatening 
And yep. um, I really like that because I, I like the idea that the Tau are designed to sort of keep the enemy back a certain distance. Because um, it, plays, it, it plays as their way. I mean, you know, I mean, they don't do close combat. It's, it's you know, barbaric to them. Uh, yeah, exactly. Culturally, they, they abhor it. So um, other than Farsight, obviously, who's... Yeah, so there's, there's, there's a couple around, like, you know, Bright Sword as well with his fusion blades, which... Yeah. You know, uh, as as a Farsight Enclaves player, I you know that relic is just an auto include. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that you can just like drop him in, as you know, put put him on a commander, drop him in with a unit of crisis suits, and then kind of once you've cleared a field, you could just charge him up there and just basically fusion smack someone. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Oh, and that reminds me of the um, that other relic, the the gauntlet. Uh, oh, Forty punch. Yes. Yeah. I, I love that so much. I love that the Tau developed this thing. Basically, all the Tau relics, I think, even like if you don't take them, they're incredibly cool and they seem so fluffy for a, a race that's obsessed with tech. Like, mm-hmm. it feels like you can turn your commander basically into Iron Man or something, where like <laughs> it can like one punch a tank or you can like point at a building and it starts shaking apart. Or, you know, there's, mm-hmm. he sends out this weird like, disruptive signal where things charging him start like bleeding from the ears and stuff i just like i think all that stuff is so cool and so unique for the tau um and and it feels very characterful but what's what's one of your favorite units for the tau for me um i've got to say for me i've always got a soft spot for crisis suits just because of our site um I mean, when I started, um, you know, when it was like a little codex supplement, yep. um, the thing about Farsight was you could take crisis suits as troop choices. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that was the core of your army and just being able to field so many of them um, in an army. I mean, they were always outnumbered, but they were never outgunned. Yep. Um, and um, just, yeah, I, I kind of, I, I, I love that from back yeah. then. Um, I'd say probably one of my favorite units currently um just aesthetically and the fact that they fit in quite well to my army which is um i don't play static gun lines out it's just Mm -hmm. again like you know from being farsight and playing you know playing them um religiously as so um i build them as a very mobile force but um Mm -hmm. ghost kills i absolutely adore yeah Um, ghost kills are so cool such a stunning sculpt um, yeah i mean gw really pulled out the you know pulled out the bag for that one yeah um, you know the, the the actual suit's got so much flavor uh, I know. and again what they can perform in eighth is ridiculous now um yep no, not super broken because again it needs that synergy but yes, exactly um, they can really perform um a brilliant task in an army just with that kind of you know if you're outside of six inches you're minus two to hit them mm-hmm. uh, even when you get within because you've got the stealth drones around them you're still yep. technically minus one um yeah. if you position them right um and you know that can that that can really hamper a lot of armies yeah and, i mean i've played a lot of games recently with a mate um who does um astro militarum mm-hmm. and that minus two to hit it just nerfs Lehman Russes and everything where to the point where he's throwing half of his army's firepower to try and take him down. <laughs> uh, yeah. And just going, nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Astromil time really struggle with those like stacking buffs of minuses to hit. Like that's, yeah, that's I mean, sort of their Achilles heel. Yeah. I mean, orcs specifically as well with their five up blister skill and your minus two to hit them. It's just like, yep. yeah, 
you know, you've got to rely on those kind of, you know, natural sixes. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, um, no, they can take it. So, um, you know, they, they, they're really good kind of, you know, um, distraction card effects almost. Yeah. Really. They're like the perfect distraction card effects because they're <laughs> so much extra hard to kill um with that minus two to hit buff and also the fact that if you depending on what you put on them i mean you can put essentially they can get up to five fusion shots a turn um yeah if, is, you, if you equip them with the um the the fusion um the main fusion gun the collider that's the yeah. one yeah because I, I i've got them and i've got i've got both of my ghost kills mm -hmm. uh completely magnetized mm. i've <sighs> I just can't get behind the fusion collider. <laughs> I, I like I, I like it, but it's just for the extra three points. That psychic mm -hmm. iron raker is just too juicy not to do. It's uh, a really good gun. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially when you equip it with, like, say, ATS, uh, like you yeah, exactly. Extra minus one. Um, you overcharge it. You know, throw a bit of Markalite support in there so you can reroll the ones to stop you yep. getting more wound anyway. And yep. you know, you you're just chucking like you know six strength eight shots, AP minus like two, and D three damage a pop. It's like yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's so good. Yeah, especially when you yeah, you just combine a couple together, they can just you know reliably take down some big stuff yep. Um, yep. and not I to mention shred infantry because they have so many shots com combined totally um another 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 unit i think i really it's it's, it's an unsung one because you don't see many of them but mm -hmm. i'm i'm tempted to buy a load more just to see how it feels just because of the um the just just the points values which is mm -hmm. the which is the, the piranha um, oh yeah um it's, you never see them never see mm -hmm. them at all but for if you equip them to the guilds you're yep. talking about a fusion blaster two drones which can pump out four shots each yep um, a strength five and you can equip them with like two seeker missiles each oh yeah yeah um you know and that brings it to just under 80 points mm -hmm. um so you know you take an art you, you take like you know five Easily in a in a two thousand point list. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. You know, um, the fact they got like a you know I think it's like a fourteen or sixteen inch move. Um, you know, just yeah, a lot, very just fast. straight up, get a few marker lights. You can just literally shred stuff apart with seeker missiles, mm -hmm. and then perform that nice cordon um, because of their you know their width. They can provide a real speed bump. Uh, yeah. Your opponents kind of really deal with because uh, you're up in their grill um and then kind of you know it's that kind of look at this hand while the other one comes swinging around <laughs> right yeah totally and piranhas um actually jesse who in the discord uh loves the piranha model so mm. I'm, I'm sure he's very in interested to hear your opinion on them because i i've never used them i i don't own any um I've but they do seem from the old battle force uh yeah yeah so. <laughs> um and i've only ever had the one and i've kind of it usually sits on the shelf and I, i'm i'm you know i've got to confess that there's so many times where i just go nah because i've just got the one but yeah you know if i I'm, I'm sorely tempted to like you know take at least three and just yeah, see yeah. They perform as a unit um you know combine them together and just you know really just throw it out there yeah they probably become a lot more gain a lot of utility if you if you do stack up at least a, a few instead of yeah. just the one yeah i mean um, these numbers i think they can perform amazingly well because just even a single one can turn the tide especially for um because they got six wounds each mm -hmm. yeah 
they're, they're not the most survival units with a four up save, but um, with their speed and the fact that they can zip around the boards, they're great for objective grabbing as well. Yeah. Uh, and for all Tau's mobility, um, they're not the fastest army out there. So right. they really provide you with um, that extra speed you need to kind of really get that board control going. Yeah, that very specific thing that the Tau seem to lack otherwise, other than maybe in flyers or something, which I also never see, but I love those models, the Tau flyers. Yeah, they're very I mean, interesting. I, I know. I mean, I've heard that they're not great, but I mean, on paper, mm-hmm. they... They they look really tempting. I mean, the Sunshark bomber when you equip them with the missiles, they got yeah. the drones with the cyclic um, um, iron guns. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. And not to mention the bomb when you fly over it, it can really mess someone's day if they're heavy infantry. I uh, agree. Yeah, yeah. I think kind of again in some numbers, then they can really um, they can really take it. Yeah, mm. I think there's a general rule. It seems like in 40k where you want to take things and multiples in general like at least two of something seems to really exponentially increase the the combat effectiveness of something Mm. um in in one exception to that though i think is the riptide at least in this edition because i i take one riptide in my list i've never owned more than one i've never run a riptide wing good Um, (laughs) but i always wanted one and um basically in the fluff i should go into the fluff of my army a little bit so yeah. Um, my my Tau army is sort of the foundation of the campaign that I'm doing for the channel. Um, and the leader, his name is Commander Ashwalker, um, or Ofaun Gin in in Tau. And uh, he is uh, he was basically a hero of the Toshvar defensives when the orcs were overrunning Toshvar, mm-hmm. and um, he proved himself an incredible battle line commander. Um, he just has like these really dogged defensive tactics and he's really good at city fighting. And um, he was basically after that fight, he was put in cryostasis as the Tau do. They don't live that long. And um, he was put in cryo and he was kept in stasis until the most recent Tau sphere expansion. Um where he was sent out to the basically the front lines of the Tau expansion. And the story of this campaign begins at the end of the Tau Sphere expansion, where the Imperium is basically, they, they lit the Damocles Gulf on fire, sort of. The uh, Admech did that. Yeah, and, um, so, yeah. So, cool. yeah. So now that the, the fire has sort of gone out, the Imperium is preparing to push back and take back a lot of these, reclaim these worlds that the Tau took. And um, my commander, Ashwalker, is basically, he's leading like a skeleton crew um, with like a few uh, city fighting veterans that he has with him. And they're holed up in like the the ruins of the Imperial City on on this frontier planet of their new space and he basically just has i want it to be like he has like very limited resources at his disposal because he's he's basically just like trying to be a roadblock for the greater imperium crusade because there's no way he can stop them but um the tau sort of are pulling back to more defensive planets more defensible locations and consolidating their defensive options but he's just providing like a stopgap defense is basically his his idea so he um prepares his his very limited forces and and 
shacks up in the city and gets ready. And I wanted it to be like, he has a very limited amount of like battle suits that he has at his disposal and men, but he just keeps reusing them. And basically the one thing that he does have is like a drone replicator. So he has this like machine that can just pump out drones and can basically like 3d print drones. (laughs) And, um, so what he does is like every time after a fight, he just creates a bunch of repair drones from the, you know, courtesy of the Earthcast that built this machine. And, and he does his best to like fix up this riptide that's, you know, half melted because it's Nova charged itself so many times. And um, I wanted it to have a very worn out, lived in feel to the whole army. So I only have one riptide and, and that's sort of the reason, the explanation that I only have one. Um, that's good. Well, I mean, technically in the lore as well, I mean, again, which is why, I, well, I didn't want to be wings are so dumb. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be that guy. I never wanted to be that guy that feels <laughs> it goes like even seventh, like, you know, just before the riptide wing was a thing. Um, yeah. You know, so many people in my local meta, they were just like, you know, and here's three riptides. And it's just like, <sighs> and it's, it's one of those things. I mean, in the lore and the fluff, it's kind of, you know, it's a rare thing. Yeah, they're uh, so hard but, to make. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, the whole the whole Nova reactor alone is so costly resource wise. Exactly. Um, and it's just like, you know, to have like so many, it's just like goes completely goes against it. So yeah. um, I'm glad that in eight they are in the position they're in because yes. Why, yes they are expensive and everyone just went oh they're totally not worth it along with kind of you know the race night and stuff right. um really as a single one unit um the riptide has a real place now um, oh man yeah while it's while they're chunky on the points it's um they can really soak up so much and they can, you know, kit it out right. They can really perform a good linchpin in, in your Tau army. Uh, yeah. Just actually kind of, you know, uh, sway it in a certain way or essentially, you know, draw, um, you know, units in to perform, um, you know, a surgical strike elsewhere. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and, they, and they completely fit in. I think they're, 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 they're pointed just right now. I uh, think so too. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. They're so good. They're, they have... I think um, what makes taking one so good now too is the uh, branch Nova charge stratagem. Yeah. Now, if you're playing match play and you can only use that stratagem once a turn, you really only want one Riptide anyway, yeah, so that your Riptide is benefiting from, like, say, a three-up invuln and its gun being Nova charged every turn. Which is um, what I always do. Every yeah, I do too. Yeah, every turn I do that. It's like <laughs> an incredible stratagem. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, um, I, I think there's kind of been maybe like I could probably count on one hand the amount of times where I've actually just done the the Nova jump. Yep, um, very fast. It, that's that's great for like the fact that it's there is an awesome utility. Like if you have to cap an objective at the end of a game or something. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it it's some it's basically like a back pocket ability whereas the other two are like literally always useful yeah um, it's kind of like why wouldn't you do that because yeah. it, to like, unless you need to get somewhere really fast but i mean assuming that you haven't like taken a severe amount of wounds i mean you know on a full on their full profile i mean they're moving 12 inches yeah plus exactly. advance anyway um and you know so i mean you're pretty much good to kind of yeah cap off objective regardless but sometimes when you need to get out of dodge um, yep. last or something you know um 
I think there's been a couple of times where I've kind of left it out in the open almost as a law. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of, you know, they, you know, the enemies come charging in and kind of, you know, they haven't quite managed to make, you know, get close enough to me, but they're willing right. to take in like, you know, a wickery amount of, you know, um, overwatch on the next go. And I've just used an overjump ability, essentially just moved it straight back. Um, right. you know, then all of a sudden they're kind of out in the open. Yep. And, and your <laughs> riptide is so far away. This yeah. is so fast. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you basically just yeah, move them away. And then you've got 12 inch move. And then you kind of advance. So you're averaging around like, you know, say three, so it's 15 inches plus two, 2d6. Yep. So, you know, again, you average another six inches. And all of a sudden, you're, you know, you're, you're back well into your deployment zone. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I've done that a couple of times to, um, to a, a lot of giggles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it can really mess with them. I mean, I think the riptide is one of those great units that can just sort of do everything you need it to in a pinch. I think that's what makes it really special. And it's got, it's got the durability, the speed and the damage output to basically be good at anything that you need it to be good at. Um, Which is why, despite the fact that they're a big chunk of points, they're actually worth that. And, um, you know, Riptide wings, if they still existed, would, be disgusting they'd be so strong um but just the one i think really it fills that role without me feeling spammy or Mm. you know cheap or anything like that because obviously i don't have a problem with anyone taking the stuff that's in their book right right because <laughs> um, I mean, as a towel player of many years, like me, it's just like you've got a. It's almost like you've got a reputation to uphold, and you're just like you don't want to be that guy. Because exactly, everyone, you don't yeah. want to be that guy. Yeah, um, and, you know, towards the end of seventh, kind of, you know, with the silly formations, and you know, yeah. the older we're getting, the hate they truly deserve. Um, but <laughs> you know, at the same time, it's how we're getting up there, and everyone, I don't know, I had, there's so many games where you know, a local local gaming club or even local games workshop. Um, yeah. Um, in town where I am, it's kind of, you know, there was, there was one guy, um, and it was so funny. And this is from an elder player. Um, <laughs> um we're playing like a 1500 point game and the table yeah. next was 1500 points. And I rock up with my fast light on plates. I've got one riptide. I'm not taking any detachments. Yeah. Uh, I'm just doing a friendly against some space walls who come, you know, had like, you know, the, uh, Wolfen and loads of other stuff mm-hmm. and this elder player just kind of said to me just like oh you're taking cheesy town and i'm just like what really it's just like <laughs> i looked over across the board and i'm just like how many points are you playing and it's yeah. just like thousand <laughs> and it's just like you're calling me cheese and you bought a race night and a thousand like, point game yeah, yeah to, to a thousand point game and you're calling <laughs> me cheese <laughs> so, oh man yeah and i called him on it it was just like back in your box mate <laughs> yeah that's ridiculous i mean the the eldar were the, the they were the the kings of cheese in in seventh edition the tower just behind them but it was yeah. only when they took those formations i mean yeah i mean the formations i, I mean I, I do have to say they some of them were great some of them i just felt dirty yeah uh, yeah i mean um there's one that i mean i never did the riptide wing because again one riptide only is enough um, but one thing I was guilty of um, in tail end of seventh was the um, optimized stealth cadre. Oh man, I used it too. I used oh, it too. Oh, 
punching tanks for days. So yeah. good. So like, strong. Yeah. I remember kind of, um, I was really, I was the first time I played Imperial Guard and literally it was mechanized like guard. So it was just like tanks and tanks and tanks. And he took an Imperial Knight. It's at, I think it's on YouTube as well. Um, it's like yeah. when, an old game from Visicast. So it's like, Oh when, yeah. Okay. And, um, I took that and it was just, I was just one shotting tanks like past didn't survive just like you know even imperial knight is just like you know it's just like rear facing value being a thing and it's just like yep. doesn't matter where you are and it's just like yeah you're going down um uh, it was it, it was brutal but it yeah. just got to the point where it was just like this is it take this saps all the fun out of it when it's just yeah you know, um you know you wanted to you be, don't you wanted to be yeah, fun you want it to be i think that you want it to be close for the game yeah. to be good and and if you're just crushing the opponent and and granted the dice can do that too it's not just like that you take a, a crazy army but unless you roll it, like <laughs> yeah yeah but like if you if you take you know if you if you take like a balanced army and your opponent takes a balanced army and your game ends up being like a real close clincher that's like that's the dream. That's what we're all, or at least that's what I'm trying for. And yeah. I think it's what most, you know, decent, sensible people are trying for. And, um, best games are always down to the wire. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I love those games so much. I love when a game seems like it's going one way the whole time and then it flips suddenly and it's, it goes the other way. I love stuff like that. That, yeah. that to me is like when a game has its own sort of narrative and you don't even have to do anything. I think that's really, that's yeah. what's special. But um, anyway, the the um, thing I was going to say about... Oh, another formation that I used um, all the time was the drone net. Yeah, love that it one. Was, the, the utility of that formation... Speaking drones. <laughs> it's just incredible. Like, it's just so strong. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just glad that... Oh, I, w I was going to say also, though, I'm really pleased with the new specialist detachments that they're coming out with because mm -hmm. it's it's everything that was cool about a formation, but you have to pay for it now. And and yeah. that's that's the difference is that you were getting those buffs for free. It didn't make any sense. But now mm -hmm. it's like you're taking units in a in a you know these this really interesting and you don't have to take like the exact thing the way that you do with the formation you just had yeah. to you can just call it a specialist detachment and then these specific things get buffs from it and you spend the cp to take it and you know you get access to other things that you also have to spend more cp on there's there's none of it's free it just gives you more tools yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the problem that the specialist attachments get um, is, and I completely agree with everything you stated. I think mm -hmm. that the problem that the specialist attachments have now, especially with the game, and I mean, it's got to be said that Eighth Edition, you know, whether you you know love, hate, or kind of you know, you still got some niggles about it. Forty K has never been in a better place. Oh, absolutely, um, it's so good right now. And it's kind of just one of those things. I mean, while it's like meant for narrative, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that your mess is completely different from mine, but mm. I just don't see it being used. In okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Point game. And it, I mean, it, granted, you know, it does cost you. There is that thing, but for the most times, it's kind of you know, it's it's kind of not really used for its ideal purpose, which is in narrative games. Yeah. Uh, 
which is where I think kind of, you know, really they should belong. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, that's so, I mean, personally for me, but that's just because I like to be able to field a bit more variation or, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm kind of like a fluffy, fluffy player. So it appeals to me. Yeah. I don't feel the need to actually take them. And it's good because you don't actually fit, have to take them and you don't really suffer too much of a, um, uh, you know, a disadvantage from not taking these things. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, again, for that reason alone, they've done a superb job because they're not like auto includes. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly it. Is that whether or not you take it, your army can still function at relatively the same level. And it's more about you're adding a specific flavor to your army or whatnot. And I think that was like, it's the way formation should have been. And I'm, that's why I'm so happy with them is that, you know, you, you, you choose not to take them because they don't add much to your army. I choose to, I've used the, um, the Wraith guard one yeah. uh, from the first vigilist book because I have a Wraith host and, you know, it was just to try out some new things that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And it didn't make my army that much better. Um, I think I, the game that I played, uh, I don't know if you watched the bat rep, but um, mm-hmm. I did. that game, yeah, yeah, uh, that game, I'm pretty sure I would have won to the same degree whether or not I took that. Like, yeah. it, it, it just it just was a, a thing, a fun thing to do that had rules specific to the units I was taking, and that's why it felt very fun and narrative and, and everything. And, and it was sort of, a, it was intended to be a narrative game too. And I want future games for the channel to be more narrative than the ones I've had so far. Mm. Um, I've really just been sort of getting my bearings as a filmer of bat rep still, but um, I want the future of the channel to be like a very narrative experience uh, with like sort of unique homemade missions and and whatnot. Mm. And um, I, I think that specialist detachments, like you said, they, they fulfill a narrative uh, sort of niche. They, they, they seem to augment people who are building their armies with a narrative purpose. I feel like they're not designed to make power players even better, which is what formations felt like, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, back in seventh, it was a case of, um, I mean, for me, it was like, it was fun for a couple of games, but it was just, you know, once, once my laughter subsided on how broken it was, it was, uh, (laughs) was, exactly. uh, (laughs) you know, it's just like, right now I just like, I just want to play a game without them. It's just, um, and the fact that again, like I say, 40k is never in a better place. You you Mm -hmm. don't have to take them. They're not auto includes. They provide a little extra flavor. Um, but yeah, they're just, you don't need to, I mean, you can literally just like give it or leave it. Um, Yeah. but yeah i mean with the channel and where i was happening i mean i'm really looking forward to the um you know i mean the narrative campaign especially kind of you know the tower one you got be interested to see the cast players you got on that as well yeah Um, yeah you know the different races all factor into that campaign and um you know just building that narrative and that's what i like about eighth as well um i think this is really really where they got it right everything has a place there are there are optimized units there are non-optimized units but everything is valid in 40k now yeah um you know to a degree and just far more than it was for sure far more than it ever was i mean there are some units you just wouldn't touch ever yep. um you know i mean still vespids you know but <laughs> uh, right but you know i mean still you know more so than any other time you know even vespids are valid to a point now yeah. uh way before yeah 
and you know i think that's great with that balance that everything can have a fair crack at stuff and yes. um, it allows for just so many different types of builds and i think the fun now is for a fluffy player like me mm-hmm. it's um it's the fact that it's taking all those um units you just wouldn't normally see the light of day and actually just giving them a chance to shine and you know quite often they just perform really well for you or you know it's just like you can find new ways of playing that you just didn't even consider and it gives your army a new lease of life and you know that could be nothing but good exactly absolutely mm. so um, back to town <laughs> yeah well there was there was just one thing i wanted to hit on um yeah. i i think i've kept you for long enough this is going to be a nice chunky uh podcast episode which i'm a fan of days <laughs> yeah i hope everyone else like you <laughs> yeah because i could just go on this forever but um one thing i did want to ask uh because the one of the first units you touched on when we were talking about that was crisis suits and um i think that crisis suits have some of the most uh maybe the most diverse range of loadouts of any unit in the game really um you know yeah with their with their three hard points and you can basically put any combination of things and there's a huge range of things you can put on them um i was this army knife of the tower army exactly and i wanted to just ask you how you run them because i think that's always a really interesting aspect of any tower army i like to ask people that yeah. Oh, that's good um so for me i do it's one of those things i i never optimize mm-hmm. i like to know who i'm playing against um as in like you know which faction mm-hmm. uh, um and then from there um because i've magnetized all my suits yep. i will adjust the loadout to fit um so say for example if i'm taking uh playing against space marines or mm-hmm. You know, I know there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, even Imperial Guard. I will always at least kit, um, you know, three out, um, you know, a, a, a squad of three with dual fusion. Right. Uh, um, just for that heavy punching unit. Um, the Then, like, I'll take another two squads and, you know, they will probably have either fusion plasma um, or because I've only got the one broadside currently, Quite often, what I like to do is run them a salty. So I'll take them maybe dual burst cannon um, and a missile pod. Yep. Um, or, you know, even one burst cannon, two missile pods, uh, right. you know, just to provide that extra weight of fire. Um, if it's, for example, I'm playing against orcs or Imperial Guard um, and it's more infantry based or, say, even demons, um, then, you know, flamers come in. Um, burst cannons, uh, yep. anything that's kind of more multi-shot to really kind of lay down that wickering hail of fire uh, yeah. as a second entry point to your army. Because mm-hmm. obviously you've got a slight kind of, you know, um, uh, castle unit or, you know, group in the back to provide kind of, you know, supporting fire for whatever you're throwing out there. Right. Um, but, you know, yeah, so it's it's kind of one of those. It's, it's kind of like everything. Um, it does depend on just on the army I'm facing, and I yeah. kind of kit it out accordingly. Um, I mean, I've even found that more recently in some of my games, um, and it's super cheap with um, uh, plasma being a plasma rifle only being like eleven points now. I know they're so cheap now, um, and like triple plasma. Yeah. Uh, on a crisis suit, you know, you, you you knock a unit of three together, you know, um, you, you get will shred space marines. You you, you you drop them in at half range, so you're within rapid fire range of twelve. Yep. 
you know, and you know, you're talking about two shots a piece. So, mm -hmm. you know, you do the maths on that because it's <laughs> day in the day for me. But I mean, you know, I mean, literally before you even coupled in drone support, the, mm -hmm. you know, the amount of plasma, reliable AP minus three and the damage each, you know, that's, that's severe dense in your enemy. Oh uh, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, th that's like the perfect Necron warrior killer or immortal killer or anything like that. Yeah. It's just crazy. Um, yeah. I mean, the one thing I probably always, I mean, I said, I have mentioned already that, you know, occasionally I'll do um, burst cannons, um, on tau crises but that's when i'm taking a very minimal list where i'm kind of lacking that kind of you know sheer way to fly fire right. enough drones to go around mm -hmm. uh occasionally when i mix up a list like that but one thing i've always found generally as a rule is avoid burst cannons mm -hmm. um on crisis they just don't need them uh, yeah you know when you're talking about army wide your basic gun is strength five ap you know dash and one damage you've got oh yeah You've got that in fire warriors. You've got that in drones. You've got that on burst cannons for any stealth suits. You've got yep. that. Um, you've literally got it in spades um, everywhere else in the army. So the last thing you really need to do is, in my opinion, equip um, your suits with them um, because it's just it, you need that extra versatility um, that you'll get from the other guns. Um, yep. at, at best equipped on them um, as a unit because they are a you know a jack of all trades. Really, you can get them to you know fit any purpose yeah absolutely uh, but another thing i factor in uh, when equipping xv8s is you know um instead of um, just saying what the best gun is it's what's the purpose i want to use for that team right and it, and it kind of it leads back to kind of the way tau play is that synergy uh, exactly so you kind of you know you kind of have a rough game plan that, you know, as soon as turn one hits, you kind of, you know, you instantly forget. Uh, <laughs> but by and large, kind of, you know, I've got a rough game plan when I kind of, you know, field an army. Uh, right. You know, um, obviously it's a very loose plan because you need to roll with the punches. It is. But you, you know, if you have something in mind on what they're going to achieve in the game and equip them out for that purpose, then it's best. So if you're going to hang them out the back uh, to provide cover, you know, missile pods are perfect. It's got the range, it's got the strength. Yep. Um, you know, when you get up close and punchy, then yeah, fusion plasma from midfield. Um, mm -hmm. It's a shame that the kits still don't come with um, psychic ion blasters. It's um, crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you can do it. And even the commander only has one. Um, I know. It's, it's just, it's <sighs> just eBay for that, I guess. It's just got to. <laughs> Yeah. Like eBay. There, there is a third party seller that does like 3d printed ones which are kind mm. of they look close to it um the mm -hmm. company they I don't, I don't know what they are now they used to be called red dog minis you mm. can play like um cyclic iron blasters uh, right but yeah it's um they could be quite tasty on um xv8s um yeah definitely. test game with them and kind of you know obviously not WYSIWYG, but you know just said you know they got one a piece yeah uh, um, you know, at a, at a crunch, they can be really good. Uh, the only problem comes when, of course, is like, you know, you've got to remember the rule that if you roll a one, then obviously it's a mortal wound. Yep. But the thing is, with the ruling of the gun, like all the other cyclic guns, it's kind of, you know, it's per gun. It's not per shooting phase. Right, <laughs> so exactly. If you equip dual cyclic, then um, the last thing you want to do is overcharge <laughs> and snake eyes that thing because then you know you're, you're 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 pretty much killing off your units yourself. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, it's um, 
yeah, uh, there's no fast answer for that, really. Um, yeah, and that's fine. I mean, I think that's the beauty of it. I think it's yeah. uh, you know, you get them. You either equip them for a purpose, or you equip them knowing roughly what army you're going to be against. So you know, you've got some tools in the bag just to essentially crack out and right. form a certain you know facet that you're going to need um, to kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah, and I think I think that's very demonstrative of just how incredibly uh multifaceted the crisis suit is it, it can do essentially anything um depending on how you equip it and i think that that is like the magic of that unit and it's what gives it so much function um in a game but something that you said that i want to touch on as a general point too is that you said you don't cater to your opponent but you do no, you find out what they're taking and then you that's how you kit out your crisis suits i'm mm. going to go out there and say that i think that not doing that is not um fluffier i think that it actually makes less sense that an army wouldn't equip itself to prepare specifically for the enemy it's facing yeah. um and with a towel i mean when you read the law and the fluff behind it that's essentially what they do they know right. It's a case of know thy enemy and like yeah. you know, Farsight, you know, you had obviously it's not a thing in the eighth edition codex anymore, but you yeah. know, with the Agrellum campaign and you know the Damocles Golf Crusades, um, you know, he basically studied um, you know, reams and reams of footage of kind of, you know, space marine battles and kind of, you know, their tactics and their codex and the codex societies and wrote the mirror codex. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, it's essentially it's kind of, you know, all the information you absorb you and you basically prepare yourself to actually face that. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I think generally by and large, it's always good to do that regardless of the army, but I think it definitely plays into the Tau fluff as well. It, uh, yeah, it plays into the nature of the Tau. They, they never just go, they're not orcs. They don't just fight for the sake of fighting. They, if yeah. they're fighting, it's for a very specific purpose. They don't waste lives. They don't yeah. waste resources. They're very, very uh, mm. pragmatic in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, and I think very surgical strikes that kind of exactly function. Yeah. And I think that that it plays into the way that they play in eighth edition more than it ever has, which is super awesome. And mm -hmm. it also plays into the, the way that you can build a list around that too. And I think it makes perfect sense from a fluff perspective to do such a thing. I think there's nothing cheesy or, or anything about the fact that you you know, if you're fighting orcs, you take burst cannons or flamers. It just, it just yeah. makes sense. That's, that's what Tau would do. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, just uh, for what I do, because I, I always, like I said, find it very interesting to see what people take for their crisis suits. Um, I have found that the best, like, take all comers option, mm -hmm. um, basically, this, this is only really so good too, since um, the points dropped so dramatically uh is i take two missile pods and ats on all my crisis suits yeah and i take two squads of three crisis suits so it's a <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's i think putting it's essentially you know strength seven it becomes ap minus two damage mm -hmm. d3 and you get a zillion shots with six crisis suits with the with two of those on each of them and the range is is awesome too it's like mm -hmm. i think they they they're able to take on so many different things. I mean, they can reliably kill um, Primaris Space Marines, um, or they can 
they can kill light vehicles like quite yeah. easily. It's so it's, um, with with drone support as well. It's yeah. Uh, the three crisis suits equipped like that essentially turns into a very mobile broadside unit. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, you know, so it does it purposely. Uh, it like, perfectly fulfills that function. Um, yeah. Kind of you know you know tank killing um, or kind of you know um, flyers as well. It'll just right. you know shred them to pieces. Yeah. Mm. It's just, I, I think it's such a cool loadout too, because I, I haven't really seen anyone else that does that specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always like taking things that I haven't seen before and sort of coming up with my own, you know, the fact that I take a brigade, I think is even kind of a unique thing for Tau players. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and you I, don't see many of them. There's just, yeah. But obviously we've got such a wealth of elite choices. It's hard not to kind of like just go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly and yeah. with the points drop i was basically able to fit in you know i had taken out a ghost keel and the stealth suits from my list once the eighth edition points came because i was like oh i can't fit these in my list at the same time as all the other things i want but with the points drops it was like i can just throw those in now i have i had over 300 extra points to play with it was it was crazy yeah so- um, um, I was going to say just one 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 question I wanted to throw back at you as well. Yeah, obviously it's something that um, we ask the people on the Discord as well, mm-hmm. um, which is um, if you had the choice of um, a Tau auxiliary um, race mm. um, to be featured kind of as a model range that maybe isn't, or you'd like it to be expanded more, um, what would it be for you and why? Yeah. Okay. So this is an interesting one because we have Vespids, which is a single unit type. And then we have Crew, which actually have a few unit types, which is really cool. Um, I actually think this might be really boring as an answer, but I would love to see, um, you know, uh, Guevesa or whatever, the, the human auxiliaries. Yeah. Um, I would love to see like sort of an officiated version of them uh, that Games Workshop writes all the rules for, and and you can sort of see them in depth, or um, maybe them in conjunction with like one other, um, yeah. like those those mind control worms. I think it would be really cool to see an army that is sort of what they could do mm-hmm. with the control of like another race or something um and or you know like (laughs) what's that with the symbiotic mind worms yeah exactly like with those with those mind worms you know it would be so interesting and so so weird to see like what an army would look like of things that have been like what those things would choose to control if they were being you know if they were doing something martial or whatever and and i think that would be really fascinating and and super like unprecedented it would be kind of like um when blackstone fortress hit you know we got all these really interesting like the men of iron and the crew mercenary we saw these things that like we haven't really seen um in a very long time they're they're pulling from like very deep lore pockets from like old old hammer yeah and um i love that and i i think that to that point, those mindworm things could really be like a, uh, something we've just never seen before, um, and I think that would be super fascinating to see, especially like in conjunction with Tau or 
Just um, the stories and the law that you can build behind kind of, you know, these mind control and kind of the subversion and kind of uh, the behind the scenes. It's, it's kind of rich for storytelling. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. think that would be very interesting. Um, yeah, it's, what, it's about you? what about you? Uh, for me, um, it's... <sighs> mm. So I thought about this actually today and it was just like my instant one was just like, bring back squats. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, the classic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the demiurge. Um, but... In all honesty, I'm happy for them just to, you know, and don't get me wrong, you know, I love the Necromunda squat model and everything. It's just yeah. like that classic nostalgia just hit me right in the heart. Um, yeah. but, um, I think for me, and it's something that I found a shame recently um, with the 7th edition codex and, you know, especially now with the 8th edition codex, mm-hmm. is um, the crew. Yeah, um, a lot of their models are really old fine cast um, they've kind of got a wealth and a story there already yep. and because there's a certain degree of separation still from the Tau Empire despite they're so intrinsically linked um, I think a full model range of crew would be absolutely amazing oh like, that would be incredible yeah, yeah that would be incredible. Even, even if just for like you know your hardcore fans that uh, kind mm-hmm. of crew, um if we weren't going to get treated with a new model range or whatever yeah. we that you know just say kind of like they just pumped out like a mini decks and a you know white dwarf uh, yeah. that would be phenomenal just be able to do that um, it'd be so good yeah and bring back those greater crew crew as well just like crew toxes i think <laughs> are like the coolest crew thing the idea of them is so cool and not only that but like the crew toxes and the crude hounds are only two variations of in the in the lore the the crew have like hundreds or thousands or something of like genetic um you know they're, they're all crude technically but like yeah. their genetic code has changed because of the way they cannibalize their opponents and they they yeah (laughs) yeah and they they inherit those traits and then eventually they become this whole new genetic line and it becomes as disparate as you know the crew talks to crew to crude hounds Mm -hmm. and there's clearly like a bunch of other things like that that we just haven't seen because because games workshop hasn't made them yet but it's like even more rapid evolution than the town have Uh, yeah Exactly. But, um, I mean, oh, it wasn't the crew talks necessarily that I was thinking of. I just forgot the name for a second. It's because um, um, Ford World kind of like stopped doing them and the rules as well. Oh, Nuff you mean Locks. that giant thing that Nuff. was in? Yeah, Narlock Riders. And like, there's the Grace Park as well. Yeah. Just this kind of, it's kind of like, um, it's like another Squiggoth. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And they were in, um, I think they were in Dawn of War too. Uh, I'm pretty sure you could use one of those in uh, the first Dawn of War video game, which is that would be cool. I've never actually played that yet. Um, oh, really? It was it was yeah. so good. The first, yeah. First I've, I've had nothing but good things about the first Dawn of War. The other ones, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably less interest in those ones. But yeah, yeah. I think I think the only. I mean, I've played a few iOS games, kind of like you know. Um, but you know, I don't really have much time for computer games. But the one thing I remember with very fond memories was uh, Space Marine. Mm. That game is great. Yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly good. Surprisingly good. It felt very true to like the, the way that a space Marine would perform and move around. And yeah, the chainsaw noise really, if nothing else is so satisfying. (laughs) The getting a jump pack and flying around with a hammer was like the most space Marine thing I could imagine. It was so good. And then also (laughs) just the way that game opened, like the, with the, you know that green sort of 
alien text font, uh, alien, like the movie alien. Yeah. Uh, it, it just felt all so grimdark. It was like, they really did a great job with yeah. like presentation in that game, making it feel like it belonged in the 40 K universe. I think. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that, uh, that's enough for now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, I mean, how long are we going for now? Oh, it's, it's close to a couple hours. Um, yeah, that's cool. It's cool. It's hope, very hope cool. You guys will enjoy it. It's yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really hoping everyone enjoys it. I've had a ton of fun, um, and I absolutely want to have you on in the future, Noel. I hope uh, we can discuss more Tau in depth and other facets of the game too, because clearly. Yeah. We could just talk about this forever. Uh, I, I could happily talk lore <laughs> for any race for days. It's, yeah. um, I'm, a, I'm a proper fluff junkie. So yeah. I mean, for me, yeah, any aspect of the hobby, it's, uh, yeah, I'm just like all behind it. But um, I, I was going to say, the only other thing I'd ask is probably following on from this, although maybe, you know, the the masses are probably bored of uh towel law but um i mean if you've got any other questions you want to ask you know either myself or you know the good man eric who's in charge here um then you know let us know uh, yeah please uh, we uh again we have a i have a free discord for the channel so anyone who wants to join you're absolutely welcome to and please post any questions you have in that um we have like a podcast section um where you can ask questions you can talk about what we discussed and uh we can ex we can expand the conversation we've already started here and any previous conversations yeah please reach out and i love interacting with you guys it's so much fun join us um, that makes sense well no, exactly well, no. <laughs> for the greater good for the greater good so yeah um this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me, Noel. Thanks, um, man. It's been an absolute blast. Yeah, of course. And uh, I look forward to much more of these in the future as the channel expands. Hoorah. And uh, thank you, everyone, so much for listening in. I hope you enjoyed this, and there's plenty more to come in the future. Goodbye, everyone. Cheers. Bye.